we are each year about this time to have two things happen. One is to have bad weather. And the other is to have Jerry come and uh, Jerry Bridges come and be with us. And that is the blessing of this time. Jerry's been sharing uh, this weekend at the Navigator Conference. Uh, and uh, they announced this is the 16th year of that conference. So Jerry's actually been preaching at our church a little longer than that each year. So it's a great joy and delight uh, for him to be here. We know him. You know him as an author as well as a speaker. But an author, we read his books in our Sunday school classes and study them in our life groups. Uh, I quote them from time to time, as you know. And, um, but uh, for us, it's a, the great privilege of being able to count him as a dear friend of our church. When we celebrated our 25-year anniversary this summer, many of you remember on the memory wall, there was one whole section uh, with, uh, entitled Jerry Bridges Conference. And so it was wonderful to have him so much a part of, of the history, the life of our church. So let me pray, and then Jerry will come. Father in heaven, we are, I am, we are indeed grateful uh, for the life and ministry of our dear friend. And so we pray that on this morning that you would uh, work in him in such a way that he would declare this truth to us, work in us in such a way that we may hear it, that we may understand it, that we may believe it, that we may be transformed by it that you may be glorified. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to you. It is great to be back here uh, Year after year, I was just thinking as I came up the steps holding onto the handrail, Bill uh, jumps up and down on these steps, and I used to do that myself. But, um, and I used to say a few years ago, I'm getting old, and I've changed that to now I am old. And, but it's great, it's a privilege to come back year after year and to see so many of you familiar faces and it really is a privilege to be here with you. I see people that I recognize and all over, and so we are delighted. My wife, Jane, will be joining us at the second service, and uh, so you won't get to meet her at this time. Would you open your Bibles with me to John, 1 John chapter 4? 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 11, and then 19 to 20. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected with us. And then dropping down to verses 19 to 20, we love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not, for he who does not love his brother uh, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and the preaching of it this morning. As I approach a passage like this and as I think of this congregation, I am reminded of the words of Peter in Second Peter chapter 1 when he says, I will always remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. And sometimes I look at a passage like this, and particularly the congregation that I know, having listened to Bill on audio all of these years, that you are a well-taught congregation, and I think, what do I have to add that is new? And the answer is, I don't have to add anything that is new, that I can simply come and remind us of what we already know. One of the great literary giants of years ago said, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. We know that we all have a tendency to let uh, forget, uh, to forget the things that we have heard instead of seeking to apply them. As we look at this passage, the first thing that comes to mind, and I'm not going to go through sentence by sentence, but just call to our mind some particular truths that I want us to see here. In verse 7 and 8, he says, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. He does not say God is loving, but rather he says God is love. That is, God's love is an essential part of his being. Would be, uh, God without love would not be God, just as God without holiness would not be God. There are two passages here in 1 John itself. It speaks in this vein of God in, in chapter 1. It says God is light. And there the light has not just an intellectual quality, but a moral quality to it. And to say that God is light is to say that he is infinite in his moral purity, his holiness. And here we say that God is love. So we see that essential to the very being of God is that God is holy and that God is love. And so building on that, uh, John is exhorting us to love one another. But let's see how he approaches it. In verse 10, he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I was reading in a commentary this past week, and where this word, in fact, I was reading to see what this uh, well-known scholar would have to say about this passage of Scripture. And uh, when he came to the word propitiation, he sort of dismissed it as belonging to another age. And uh, I know that that uh, factually is true because no one knows what propitiation means anymore, but that's to our detriment because it's one of the most important words in the Bible. And we need to keep passing on to our generations. And 
may I just say to you, parents, keep passing on to your children these strong theological words in the Bible. Otherwise, you know, what he said will be true. Well, those words just belong to another uh, era, another generation, if you please. The word propitiation has to do with one's attempting to placate or to appease the anger of the gods. That's God with a little g. It's not the God, but it's the gods. And so, in the days of old, in fact, even today, people will uh, offer sacrifices, they will burn incense, they will do all kinds of things in order to appease the anger of the gods. And because in their thinking, the gods were always angry at them. And so they constantly needed to be appeased. This is not what the word propitiation, as it is taken up into the Bible, means. I think the best way for us to understand this word propitiation, and it has to do with, in in the Bible, it does have to do with the wrath of God. And that takes us into a subject that many people shy away from because most people do not like to think of the wrath of God. For one, there is a legitimate reason for that on the one hand, that people always think of wrath as someone losing control of his or her emotions and blowing their stack, so to speak, and these kinds of things. But the wrath of God uh, has nothing to do with his emotions, although the Bible does tell us that he hates sin, but that's with a holy hatred. But I'd like to say that the wrath of God is simply God's justice in action, rendering to everyone what is due. And particularly for us, it would be uh, the death penalty because of our sin. And so we have the wrath of God, and um, all through the Scripture, we see that Jesus speaks of the wrath of God. You remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before His crucifixion, in Matthew 26:39, Jesus prayed in His prayer to the Father, He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then again later on, uh, after Peter had cut off the ear of the high priest's servant with his sword, and Jesus had restored that, and then He turned to Peter, and He said, Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me to drink? So in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the, uh, the crucifixion, He prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, if it be your will. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he says, Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me to drink? Have you ever stopped to wonder what was in the cup? Why did, what did Jesus have in mind when he said, Let this cup pass from me? Or shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me to drink? In the Old Testament, and again in the book of Revelation, we find references to the cup of the wrath of God. And so when Jesus says, may I not drink this cup, uh, he is saying, may I not experience your wrath poured out on me. And then he says, I will drink it. And so the word propitiation, in a biblical sense, as it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ, simply means this, that Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God. 
You might say he turned it upside down and drank it to his last bitter drop. So he did not appease the wrath of God. He experienced the wrath of God. And in that experience, he exhausted the wrath of God. For, for years, I, I labored, um, you know, off and on. Uh, how can I express this word propitiation in a way that people will understand it and still be biblical? And finally one day, and I, I can't remember where I got this idea, but I thought, aha, that's the word to use, exhausted. Jesus didn't placate the wrath of God. He didn't appease the anger of God. Jesus experienced the wrath of God in its fullness, in its all of its fury, all of God's hatred of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so as Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute, as our representative before God, bearing our sin, God pours out his wrath, the wrath that you and I deserve. He pours out his wrath on his own son. And Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God. As you think about Jesus hanging on the cross, and we're talking about three hours from 12 noon until 3 p.m., when darkness covered the face of the earth. And, and again, in a biblical sense, darkness is a sign of judgment. And so Jesus, for those three hours, was drinking the wrath and the cup of the wrath of God, experiencing the wrath that you and I deserved. As the Father views the Son hanging on the cross, He sees Him in two ways. And, and only God can do this. As He sees Him in his person, as his beloved son, he could say, "This as he sees Jesus hanging on the cross, he could say, this is my beloved son. Because Jesus was at that time, as he hung on the cross, he was doing exactly the thing that God had sent him to do. And so as God looks at him in his own person, he can say, this is my beloved son. And he loves him with a love that you and I cannot possibly understand. But because Jesus is hanging on that cross in our place as our representative, God pours out his wrath upon the one in whom he is well pleased. So as he looks at his person, he loves him and he's well pleased. As he sees him as our representative hanging there in our place, he pours out his wrath. We cannot understand that. How could this be? How can wrath be poured out on someone whom you love? And the answer is, from before the foundation of the world, God had appointed His Son to come and to take our place and to suffer His wrath so that you and I might not have to suffer. And so for you and me today, the cup of the wrath of God is an empty cup. There's no more wrath. There's not a single drop of wrath in the cup for you and I, for you and me, if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so, 
when we think of the love of God, then what is our response? That we would love Him in return. And this takes me to uh, verse 19, where John says, We love because He first loved us. Now, who is the object here? He says, We love, but He doesn't say, Who we love. He doesn't say we love God because He first loved us. He doesn't say we love one another because God first loved us. Given the context, it's probably the latter, that we love one another because God loved us. But, but the fact is, we love God because He first loved us. And I believe that John, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, deliberately left off an object and just said, we love. We love both God and we love our fellow believer. Because, and, and the reason for that is because God first loved us. Let's consider, as we go beyond the love of God in sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, let's consider the love of God in our daily lives today. Because this is where you know we, we encounter the love of God and we experience the love of God or we doubt the love of God. But in our day-to-day uh, just living in life, how do we understand and receive the love of God? A lot of people, even I'm talking about believers now, not the unbeliever, but believers, many believers have questions about whether or not God loves them because they see themselves as unworthy of God's love. And it's true that we are indeed unworthy of His love. But this is where we go back to God is love. By saying that God is love, it's an essential part of His nature. What the Bible is saying through a phrase like that is that God's love is not dependent on the object of His love. You know, we can love a person because that person might say is lovable. And then we have difficulty loving another person because that person is kind of prickly, unlovable, so to speak. And I can remember, you know, having asked God to enable me to love a particular individual that was rather prickly, if you please. But God's love is not dependent upon whether or not we are lovable or prickly because it is the very nature of God to love. God's love is self-generated. And so, as we think of God's love, we can think of it as two aspects. First of all, I call uh, the first aspect the love of purpose. That is, God's purpose to do us good. God's purpose to send His Son to die and to live and to die in our place. God's purpose to care for us. All that uh, God does for us and to us you might call it the love of God's purpose. The second aspect is the love of affection. I think that we often do not think of God's love as expressing itself in the love of affection. But if uh, I'm going to turn and, and read to you Isaiah 62, verse 5. And the writer here says, For as a young man 
marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Think of a wedding date, either your own wedding or one of your children's weddings or wedding that you've recently attended. And, uh, you know, all the, the ghosts enter that. And, and, you know, at a certain point, the uh, attendants, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen come and they stand. And uh, then the music begins and the bride, accompanied by her father, comes down the aisle. And the bridegroom is standing there. And a great big smile on his face as he sees his bride coming down the aisle. And this is the picture here where he says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God rejoices over you today with the same affection. In fact, you might say affection carried to its infinite degree. The affection that a bridegroom has for his bride. And so, God is not just saying, well, you know, I really can't stand these people, but I purpose to do them good. It's not like that at all. And so, he not only purposes to do us good, but he loves us with a fatherly affection. In this case, with the same affection that the bridegroom would have the bride. The old Puritan John Owen in in commenting on this passage of Scripture said, how can God say that? Or he was was actually commenting on Song of Solomon uh, 2 where um, the bridegroom says to the uh, to the bride you're beautiful my love, you're beautiful. And then he raises the question How can God say that? As he looks at us and he sees us in our sin, how can God say, you're beautiful, my love, you're beautiful? And he says, because he has made us beautiful. How has he done that? He's washed us clean from the filth and the guilt of our sin through the blood of his Son. And then he has clothed us with the beautiful righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as he looks at us, clothed in his righteousness, he sees the same righteousness that he sees in his Son. And he can say to us, you're beautiful, my love. You're beautiful. And so when you think of the love of God, don't just think of his love of purpose, but think also of his love of affection. God really does love you. And yet, we struggle with the love of God. As I mentioned earlier, some people struggle because they feel unworthy. And our worthiness or unworthiness has nothing to do with the love of God because it's self-generated. It's a part of His being. But the other reason why we struggle with the love of God is oftentimes we are going through difficult or painful uh, periods in our lives And Satan can somehow cause us to think, and I don't know how Satan does this, but I I can testify that he does it. He will cause us to think, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to be going through this awful pain that I'm experiencing. And so we doubt the love of God because we tend to think 
in that way. If God loved me, he wouldn't allow all of this pain that has come upon me. And I speak this morning as one who struggles with that from time to time. Uh, I um, have often said that life is always difficult and sometimes it's painful. And uh, within the last month or so, I've come up with a third descriptive term uh, just based on my own experience, and it's life is often a struggle. 2013 was one of the most difficult years of my life, and, and it was a year of struggle. And so I don't speak to you today as one who's got his act all together and has no problem with the love of God. I have struggled with the big question, you know, if God really loves me, why am I experiencing all of this pain and all of this struggle? Let me give you today, just based on my own experience, let me give you passages of Scripture that have helped me. You remember that uh, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was led into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil, that in each of those three instances, he answered, it is written, and he responded with a passage of Scripture. And so I want to give you this morning some it is written passages that you can use to respond to the devil when he uh, somehow suggests to you or puts the thought in your mind that if God really loves you, he wouldn't allow you to go through all this pain. Three verses of Scripture. The first one is Romans 8:39. Paul there is saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I have found that it's very helpful to me. Uh, oftentimes, when a scripture writer says something about God, I sort of restate that as God himself speaking. Because we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God as he guides the writers of scripture to say what they say. And so, what Paul says, God says. What Peter says, God says. In the context of the inspiration of Scripture. And so, I take a passage like Romans 8.39, where Paul says that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I restate that as God speaking to me, saying, nothing can separate you from my love. How about that? This is what God is saying. And by using the Word of God, using the Scripture, you can, as it were, hear God saying to you, I know you're going through pain. I know life is difficult. I know you do not understand why, what's going on, and why it's going on, and you don't see the purpose of it. But I want you to know, nothing can separate you from my love. The second passage of Scripture that I want to give to you, and again, it's a passage that I restate, so let me quote it first of all, as it is in the Bible. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 7, says, Cast all your care, all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. So Peter is saying that about God, but he's, he's saying that about God as the Spirit of God guided him. 
So again, I restate that passage, and I, so to speak, hear God say, cast all of your care on me. Look at this situation that is causing you such pain, such emotional pain and difficulty at this time, and cast it upon me, for I care for you. And in those moments of pain and doubt and difficulty and struggle, just who, as it were, from the Bible, hear the word of God, I care for you. I love you, and I care for you. The third passage that I go to, and, and uh, I, can, I can tell you now, when God first brought this passage to my mind, it was in, it was in 1995, and um, some very difficult things were happening, and uh, during that time, two verses of Scripture came to my mind. One was Ecclesiastes 7:13. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And uh, it was as if God was saying to me, uh, you can try everything to sort of wiggle out of this situation, but you can't do it. Because I've made your way crooked, and you cannot straighten what I have made crooked. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? But right along with that was Hebrews 13.5, just the latter part of the verse, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You cannot straighten. You cannot make straight what I have made crooked. But in the midst of the crookedness of your life, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You know, we have the expression, a go-to person. Uh, you know, Peyton Manning this afternoon is probably, of all of his receivers, he's going to have a go-to guy that he's, he's going to. And, you know, we want something fixed and we have a go-to person. Well, I've uh, adapted that expression. I have a cling-to verse. And Hebrews 13.5 is my cling-to verse. The verse actually says, in its fullness, let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content <coughs> with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, the contentment there is obviously contentment with one's material status. Be content with such things as you have. To me, the real issue is not contentment with the things that I have or don't have. It's contentment with rapidly deteriorating health and things like that. And so I, again, have restated that verse to... Let my manner of life be without discontent, without grumbling, if you please. Be content with your situation, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I cannot tell you how often I go to that. It's the verse I cling to. Lord, I don't understand what's going on, and I don't understand why you do not Leave this situation, but you have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I cling to that. I may not understand, the situation may not change, but God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we see that God's love is expressed to us, first of all, 
in sending his son to drink the cup of his wrath in our place so that for us it's an empty cup. And then God's love is expressed in the fact that he is affection. He, he rejoices over us as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. And in that, he always cares for us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Nothing will be able to separate us from his love. This, dear friends, is the love of God. Shall we pray? Our Father, we stand amazed at your love. We acknowledge that in ourselves, even as regenerated people, with our still remaining sinfulness, that we're not very lovable. And sometimes we're not very lovable to one another. We're rather prickly and difficult to get along with. But we thank you that you love us, not because we're lovable, but in spite of the fact that we're unlovable. Father, thank you for sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And thank you, Father, for the assurance that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, Father, for your love to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. Mind you, there'll be elders available to pray after the service in the the front of the church, uh, the sanctuary right down here to my left. And I encourage you to uh, take advantage of our Sunday school opportunities. If you'd like to greet Jerry and and, uh, share your thanks to him, he'll be right down here as well uh, where he is presently and be able to greet you. So please receive this now as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. May wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, honor, dominion, power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing.